Is there somebody who'd be willing to open us in prayer? I'll pray first. All right. Lord, we thank you for an opportunity to gather together as your body. Um, and I pray that what we learn today helps us grow in unity. Uh, we serve one Lord. I pray that we also learn to see you correctly and to spur each other on to love and good works. And that anything that's in error in us is set right. Um, Jesus has an opportunity to do so, Lord. I pray that just like Christ, we walk in your spirit. So we'll spend some time doing kind of the backdrop of Mark's gospel and then hopefully get into at least the first few verses this morning. But I figured I would start with the question, what do you know about Mark's gospel as far as background or anything related to its history, origins, author, location, anything like that? Raise your hand if you think it was written by a guy named Mark. You're only half right, John Mark. I'm kidding, you're right, I'm kidding. But we will talk about John Mark, but anything else? Short. It's short. Yeah, one of the things we're gonna point out, as you read Mark, notice how many times you come across the word immediately. Mark is speeding through this thing from the introduction of Jesus to the crucifixion and a brief moment of resurrection, and then it's kind of over. So it's, it's short, it's fast, it's a quick read. My guess is you could easily read this in one sitting. Maybe it would take you an hour, maybe a little bit longer, but it wouldn't take too long. Anything else? Absolutely. We're going to talk about that a little bit more, the kind of style and language that he uses. So this is really kind of a unique writing in the ancient world um, in the sense that you have some historical biographies, but this kind of gospel narrative is really um, a pretty unique genre. There's not really much like it. Um, you know, you have like Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, which is like epic poetry. But that's not the same thing. It's an unfolding story. It's not really a biography about a per particular person. It's a more sort of general view of the ancient Greek understanding of the world. So Mark's gospel um, is pretty, pretty unique in this sense. I would categorize it as what we would call one of the synoptic gospels. Does anybody know what the word synopsis means? Or what the synoptic gospels are? How many Gospels are there in the Bible? Well, there's one Gospel. Amen. <laughs> how, many how many written accounts of the life of Jesus are there? Four, right? Four Gospels. And for the sake of kind of identifying how they're similar or different, we break them into two groups. The synoptic Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which give a synopsis, a story of the life of Jesus. They may or may not be chronological. That wasn't quite as important as history or storytelling is for us today. In the ancient world, it didn't matter that much. 
they might be trying to make a point and so they might arrange the the uh, events in a different kind of order and then you have the gospel of john which we don't call a synoptic gospel um because it's not it's not shaped or formatted the same way as matthew mark and luke okay so for much of church history it was believed that actually mark was just a pared down version of matthew and that matthew came first but most people today believe that Mark's gospel was the very first gospel. So I'm going to give you a date for that a little bit later. Um, I agree with that perspective. I think Mark got his gospel written down first. And then Matthew and Luke both used it as a source document for their investigation and their recording of the gospel of Jesus. Uh, Luke stated, actually, so let me unpack this a little bit. Luke actually states in chapter one of his gospel that he had some other documents as a source material. So that's kind of interesting in verses 1 through 4. Matthew, believe it or not, incorporates about 90% of Mark and then builds on it. Luke incorporates over 40% of Mark. Over 600 of Mark's 661 verses are found in Matthew and Luke combined. Sorry. So pretty much the totality of Mark is also recorded in Matthew and Luke. Uh, Matthew and Luke usually follow Mark's order of events in the life of Jesus. And where they kind of tend to differ and go their own direction, they still follow the order of his events. So where they might insert something else that doesn't, isn't recorded in Mark, they're still following what the events that follow that follow Mark's gospel. Uh, and then I would add that Matthew and Luke hardly ever agree against the content of, sorry, Matthew and Luke hardly ever agree against the content of Mark. So these are all just things where we're supporting this idea that Mark was the very first gospel written. Um, and then sometimes they'll actually repeat the words of Mark, but where they do that, where Matthew and Luke repeat the words of Mark, they tend to do it in a stylistically more uh, developed format. So like you were mentioning, it's it's fairly simple linguistically. Um, so does anybody know if Mark states the author of the gospel anywhere in it? So there's no statement in the gospel of Mark about who the author is. But there is quite a bit of evidence that Mark was the author. So there's a guy named Papias who uh, wrote around 110 AD. He actually lived from 60 AD. So that's when, his, when he was born, roughly 30 years after Jesus. And he died around 120 AD. And he has some writing from 110 where he speaks about John the Elder. John the Elder was most likely the Apostle John. And uh, John the Elder says that Mark was authored by Mark. That this gospel was authored by Mark. And then additionally, church tradition strongly agrees on that. So maybe you've heard some of these names, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, and Origen all say that Mark was the author of this gospel. So that's pretty, pretty conclusive. There's also some internal evidence that suggests that Mark wrote this. So Mark was very familiar with Palestine and with Jerusalem in particular. So he was, you know, geographically aware of the area. He knew Aramaic which was the language of the region. He understood Jewish customs um, and Jewish institutions like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And 
again, none of this is like proof. Mark's name is not in the gospel, but it's some pretty conclusive evidence, I think. Um, Can I ask you a question? How, yeah, how please. Would you, how would you answer, um, going back to something you said earlier about uh, Mark being almost fully contained in Matthew and Luke, how would you like answer why we should read Mark, since we could just basically get it in Matthew? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, because it's God's word, that would be like the most fundamental answer. Like if it's included in scripture, it's valuable because God put it there. Um, and I do think it's interesting to give get different perspectives. Um, you, you know, we're, one of the things we're going to talk about is Luke is driving his narrative towards the cross. So about the first half of it up until middle of chapter eight is the er, sort of the early ministry of Jesus or Jesus through his ministry. And the whole second half of this gospel is just the Passion Week, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. And the resurrection is like that. So really it's just the Passion and the crucifixion. So he's got a particular perspective that he's bringing. So those would be some of the reasons. Do you have any that you would add to that? Kind of stupid question. I'm just curious. No, no, it's not a stupid question at all. It's, it's actually a fair question. Like, why do we need four of these? Uh, wouldn't one have been enough? And yeah, but if we understand that God is genius in his wisdom and he gave us four, then we should treasure all of them. So, not a stupid question at all. Or maybe the shameless is, it only takes an hour to read. Why aren't we reading it? Why don't we read it? <laughs> you know what's really fascinating is uh, I saw this document this week, which I could pull it up. And um, it was actually from John Piper's website called Desiring God. And it was all of the books of the Bible and how long it takes to read them in a single sitting. And you might be surprised because we tend to sort of like read a chapter and it's like I did my five minutes for the day and I'm done. Um, I, I, I'll tell you, I don't mean this in like a boastful way, but at one point, just before I went into college, I did this backpacking trip, 18 days in the wilderness. And at the end of the trip, we, we spent three days alone just in the woods. I was next to Lake Superior in the middle of nowhere. I didn't see a single other person for three straight days. And I read the Bible cover to cover in three days. So you can cruise through it if you want. Um, but something like Mark is... It wouldn't take you very long to read the whole thing. Um, okay, so Papias, again, this guy from really kind of the first and second century, um, speaks of Mark. And uh, Mark was not entirely an eyewitness follower of Jesus. So he was present for some of the events, I think. And I'm going to give you one of those instances where I think Mark records himself in the text. But he was not like one of the apostles. He was not one of the disciples. But he did accompany the apostle Peter, and he would have heard his preaching quite a lot. Uh, and um, one of the ways that we know that, or that we suspect that Mark was getting a lot of inf his information from Peter is Mark records things regarding kind of the inner circle of Jesus, not just his apostles, but also um, John and Peter and James, who were Jesus' kind of closest inner circle. And how would Mark have got that information if he wasn't interacting with one of those guys? I mean, I guess the Holy Spirit could have inspired him. That's possible. But more than likely, it probably came from Peter telling him. Um, he, Mark records incredibly accurately all that Peter remembered of Jesus' words, but he doesn't follow chronological order necessarily. So this is Papias writing about Mark, about this gospel, okay? And then Papias says that, uh, Mark was Peter's interpreter, not meaning that um, he was translating 
the work but of Peter, but instead that he was making it available for a wide audience. Okay, Peter couldn't necessarily get everywhere and speak everywhere, so Mark records the teachings of Peter that came from Jesus. Um, and then, of course, Papias says that Mark's account is wholly reliable, meaning it's sufficient, it's, it's perfect, it's good. Uh, okay, I, I think that this Mark that we're talking about is also sometimes referred to John, referred to as John Mark. So we see John Mark come up quite a bit in Acts. Maybe that name sounds familiar to you. Acts chapter 12, verse 12, and chapter 15, verse 37. In Acts 15, this is the same John Mark who Paul and Barnabas have a dispute over. Do you remember this? Paul and Barnabas are traveling together, doing ministry. Barnabas wants to take John Mark on the next leg of their journey. Uh, Paul is frustrated with John Mark because he kind of earlier abandoned them and went back to Jerusalem. And so Paul and Barnabas uh, split ways. That's over John Mark. Um, I'm going kind of fast. Any questions or thoughts, comments on any of that? Okay. What I find kind of cool, somebody open up 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Somebody pull that up for us. Pull that up like we're using a computer. Open that up for us. Second Timothy, anybody got it? I guess. Yeah? Would you read um, uh, just verse 11 for us? Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. So I think this is really cool. At some point after Acts 15, when Paul and Barnabas split ways over Mark, uh, Paul and Mark somehow reconcile. We don't have how that happened. It's not recorded for us. But here, Paul, as he writes to Timothy, is saying, hey, and when you come, bring Mark with you uh, because he's useful to me for ministry. That's cool. And I'll actually point something else out. I was going to wait, but since we've got it open, we'll go ahead and just do it. If you keep reading here, um, it says, Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus... Then verse 13, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. That's interesting. God's word includes this request to like bring some luggage. Also the books and above all the parchments. Uh, he doesn't use the word scrolls. So I don't think he's talking about Old Testament documents here. Um, I think that, I think maybe Paul and Mark are working on his gospel. Uh, and maybe that's what's referred to here. I don't know, no way to know. It's just kind of fun to maybe think about that. So a bit more about Mark. He was a Jewish Christian. He lived in Jerusalem along with Mary, his mother. Um, nothing is known about his father, uh, which is kind of interesting. I guess he's like Timothy in that way. Actually, the home of Mark, we find out in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, was an early Christian meeting place. So uh, the home of Mark and his mother Mary um, was probably like an early church. And it may have been the location of Jesus' final Passover meal even. So um, there's a little bit of commentary on that in Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 16. 
Uh, we can look at that real quick. It says, and on the first day of unleavened bread, this is Mark 14, verse 12, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to Jesus, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples sent out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Not explicit enough for us to know for sure, but it's quite possible that was actually Mark's home. Um, and then there's quite a lot of belief that, maybe you remember the scene where Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, as they're coming to arrest him, there's a, a guy who like gets his cloak grabbed, and so he rips it off and runs away pretty much naked. Um, there's quite a bit of, I guess maybe the word is speculation. There's, there's, there's belief that that's Mark referencing himself in his gospel. Um, and, and I'm pretty sure that that's actually unique to Mark's gospel. I don't think that that's recorded in the other gospels. Um, I should check and verify that. Um, Mark was a fellow worker with Paul during Paul's first Roman imprisonment. So we get some reference to him in some of Paul's letters, Colossians and Philemon. That would have been in 60 to 62. And then uh, Paul during his second imprisonment in Rome, like we just looked at, requested that Mark would come and join him. Um, so this is actually contrary to something I said earlier. If Paul is requesting Mark in 2 Timothy regarding the parchments, they couldn't have been um, Mark's gospel if we date it in a certain way. Okay, so I'm, I'm being a little confusing here, but let me explain. Um, I, I think that actually Mark's gospel was probably written relatively early, between 57 and 59. That would have been during the reign of Emperor Nero. I think it's actually before the death of Peter and Paul. That's attested to by Clement of Alexandria and Origen as well. Okay, uh, That would have been before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which is a significant date, AD 70. And then the author was a primarily Roman Gentile audience. Um, and we'll see that right from the get-go, because unlike Matthew and Luke that have these long genealogies, um, Mark doesn't seem to care much about the genealogy of Jesus, which to a Jewish audience would have been very important, but to a Roman audience wouldn't have mattered quite as much. So any, any other thoughts, questions on any of that? Okay. Why does it matter? Eh, I don't know. It's just, it's kind of interesting to know maybe some of the backdrop of these things. Um, a couple of distinctives of Mark's gospel as compared to some of the other ones, Matthew and Luke in particular. It has a real emphasis on the actions of Jesus, not so much on the teachings of Jesus. That's a big difference. You've got a very vivid description and tone, um, which does suggest that he is recording the account of somebody who was close to these events. Um, versus kind of Luke, who's like, I am, I'm doing an investigative research project to record information about Jesus for you. 
That's kind of how Luke begins his gospel. And then I mentioned also that a lot of it is just very abrupt. Um, again, as, if, as you're reading Mark, hopefully you'll read kind of along with us. I mean, we'll read it in class together, but if you're reading it at home, just notice how often the narrative is speeding along, how often Mark uses the word immediately. It Once you notice it, it almost becomes tiring. It's sort of like the FedEx symbol. Have you guys ever noticed that the FedEx symbol is an arrow? I never noticed that in my whole life, and then somebody pointed it out that like the E and the X together make like an arrow, and now all I can see is an arrow, right? So now as you're reading Mark, all you'll be able to see is, well, hopefully Jesus, but also immediately. Um, and then I think Mark is giving kind of a focus on discipleship. And so what I mean by that is, as I think as you read this, you almost find yourself like following Jesus walking along with him in his ministry. I mean, of course, that's obviously the intent, but in a way that's a little bit different than Matthew and Luke. I think Mark is trying to kind of draw you into the story as if you're one of these people following in the footsteps of Christ. Um, and then the really sudden ending of Mark, so we will get to this many weeks from now. Um, I take the position that there is a, an addendum to Mark's gospel that doesn't actually belong in our Bibles. Um, hopefully that doesn't make anybody's head explode. If it does, you'll just have to wait 16 weeks till we get there. But I think that uh, Mark should end after uh, chapter 16, verse 8. And I think that's very intentional. Mark has this very sudden ending that just leaves you thinking like, oh my goodness, Jesus rose from the dead. And just leaves you with that cliffhanger, um, which again, I think kind of draws you into the story, right? You ever watched a show where it ends with a cliffhanger and you're like, oh my goodness, I cannot wait till next week to watch the next episode. We don't have that problem anymore because you just stream it on Netflix anyway. But um, I think Mark is intentional in that ending. And then I think he's also giving a really pastoral reflection on the life and actions of Jesus. Um, you know, whereas... Matthew is trying to sort of persuade a Jewish audience that Jesus is the Messiah and Luke is trying to kind of persuade the skeptic that these events are true. I think Mark is kind of trying to speak pastorally to an audience um, and, and show them uh, just how wonderful the life and actions of Jesus were. Any other questions on any of that? Thoughts? Comments? anybody like no I did my own background research and you're totally wrong on this 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 and this so um, I do encourage you so personally I don't like to read from a study Bible just because it tends to kind of influence the way that I think but I do have a study Bible and I encourage people to potentially get a study Bible I mean we're you're so blessed to have so many different Bible options and just one of the reasons is because when you get to a book it can be helpful, most study Bibles have, like, here's kind of a synopsis of what you're reading. Here's probably when it was dated. Here's kind of the purpose behind it. Those things can help kind of focus your reading as you're going through a book of the Bible. Okay. Well, then let's jump in to chapter one. Is there somebody who would be willing to read chapter one? Let's just do verses 1 through 8 for starters. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of 
God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and, and I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so um, there is Mark's genealogy in uh, verse 1. That's it. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Who is this man? What are his origins? Uh, Mark doesn't really want to prove to you that he comes from David or Abraham or even Adam. He just wants to say and help you understand that this is the Son of God. Um which I think should be, um, you know, it should be kind of gripping. That's, that's a powerful statement for somebody to begin a book, um, you know, with that, with that opening line. And then, but he does very quickly, and, and this, is, this is typical of Mark, right? So Mark, in the next couple of verses, verses 2 through 3, is going to prove that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecy, but he's going to do it very quickly. He's just going to say, look, here's a prophecy from the Old Testament. Here's how it's fulfilled. And it points us to Jesus. Okay. He's not going to go into like a long, deep thing about it like, um, like Matthew does in his gospel. Okay. So as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his, his paths straight. Who is he talking about? Jesus. Actually, he's talking about John. Oh, yeah, John. Right? Trick question. Sorry. Yeah. Um, behold, well, I mean, he's talking about both, honestly. You're, you're, you're correct. You're not wrong. Behold, I send my messenger, that is John the Baptist, before your face, that is Jesus the Son. Okay? John is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So then John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of what? Repentance. Repentance. Okay, so here's a question. Is John's baptism that he was doing in the Jordan River in Israel the same as the baptism that you may have gone through as a Christian? Yes. Again, I think it's a bit of a trick question. It's a yes and no. And, and the reason why is because our baptism is a baptism for the repentance of sins. That's true. But the Holy Spirit had not yet entered into the lives of believers. Because Jesus did, did because that's before Jesus died. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Um, and what John was doing was really kind of a unique thing here. Because uh, the Jews practiced baptism as a sort of ritual washing, a cleansing, 
but it wasn't necessarily for the forgiveness of sins. So outside of most synagogues, you had this thing that was called a mikvah. Anybody know what a mikvah is? Mm -hmm. You want, can you describe it for us? Or I don't want to put you on the spot. It's okay <laughs> no, if you can't. No, I cannot. Okay. I just, I just witnessed it. You've heard the name before. It's familiar. Okay, so a mikvah was a, like a baptismal pool. And it was, again, so the Jews could ritually wash themselves before they would go into synagogue. Yeah. You can look it up, M-I-Q-V-E-H. I think is how you spell it. Or maybe M-I-K-V-E-H. And uh, it looks like, you know, a baptismal font that you might find in a Baptist church these days. It's, you know, in the ground, you'd have this stone kind of pool cut out with steps that would go down and it had to be running water. So they would have uh, like an irrigation canal that would flow in and then a drain that would take the water out. And the Jews were doing this kind of thing all the time. John is weird because he's not doing this outside of a synagogue or the temple. He's out in the River Jordan in the wilderness. In other words, he's doing this unauthorized by the uh, Jewish authorities, okay? And it's a baptism for the repentance of sins, um, which is also interesting because how did the Jews actually get their sins forgiven according to the Old Testament law? By sacrificing the animals. Yes, what, what did you say? The atonement. Yeah, atonement, right? Sacrificial atonement done at the temple not through baptism. So this is clearly something new is here. Something different is taking place in the arrival of John, okay? Can I share something that was helpful to me as yeah. far as the, the big straight paths? Yeah. Um, you know, we gotta go back to their time, the roads were dirt and bumpy, and like what, when it was announced the king was, was coming, the people of the town would go out and try to flatten the roads and make it as comfortable and smooth as possible so the king wasn't bouncing around and miserable by the time he got to him. And I just, that imagery is cool, like uh, what John the Baptist is doing is make, paving the way to make Jesus' entry calm, not only quickly, but smoothly and yeah. identifiable. And Prepared. That's great. Thank you for bringing that up. It actually reminds me, so my grandfather uh, was a, he was actually an elder at a Dutch Reformed church in Los Angeles. And uh, back in the day, I want to say it was like the 1920s maybe, um, the the uh, the king and queen of the Netherlands visited their church, and in preparation, if you go to the so my grandfather actually lived across the street from this church, and the road is super wide, it's like abnormally wide in the L.A. area, and uh, my grandfather told me the reason is because when the king and queen came, they widened and prepared the road for their arrival. So it's kind of cool. That's a that's a really good point. That's exactly what John is doing. Um, and, and and speaking of the baptized, because John is, I mean, this is before the the crucifixion, and I think John is like already showing a parallel of you know the after crucifixion that you know when we get baptized a symbol. Of yes. Christ, absolutely, absolutely, and we're gonna get to that a little bit more as we get a couple more verses into this, and and don't misunderstand. I, I think what John is doing is like a, kind of a half step towards the baptism that we have. Our baptism is also a baptism for the remission of sins, the confession of sins. But it's not quite the same in the sense that like John is kind of this bridge between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Um, in fact, Jesus even says that in the Old Covenant, there's no one greater than John. And then he says, but those of you who are in this covenant are greater than John, which is pretty amazing. 
Um, I wish I could think of the, the reference of that off the top of my head. If somebody knows it, feel free to toss it out. Um, maybe actually we'll get to it in, in Mark's gospel. Uh, okay, so John is a total weirdo. I mean, if you were reading this uh, story for the first time, I mean, for some reason we're just kind of... Hippie? <laughs> yeah, he, he is. He's, he's a hippie weirdo. Um, you know, we're so familiar with these things that they don't jump out to us at all. When you think about the Jewish religious system, you got to think of like pressed suits, polished, educated men, wealth, and pomp and circumstance. That was like what Jewish people understood to be sort of the God-ordained work among the Jewish people. And instead, you get this weirdo hermit who doesn't take showers and lives out in the wilderness and eats bugs and honey and wears camel skin like this is this would have been a very shocking um movement of god again something different is here okay and he preached verse seven saying um Man, this is beautiful. You just, you got to love John the Baptist because he's the guy who says, I must decrease and he must increase, right? John knew his place. He was not the guy walking around being like, let me tell you about my ministry. He was the guy walking around saying, let me tell you about the one who's coming after me, right? Get ready because he's on his way. Verse seven, he preached saying, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Like, I'm not even worthy to be his servant and his slave to do something like take his shoes off as he comes into the house. I baptized you with water. So there you go. John's even saying, like, look, the baptism that I'm giving you is going to be different than the one that he's going to come offer. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Okay. Any other thoughts, questions on that? Verse uh, 5. Yeah. Hyperbole for every single person. And I, and I bring that up just to say I think it's hyperbole. And I think that Bible readers should understand that the Bible uses hyperbole. And we should, try, we should take it literally, but as it's meant. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for bringing that up as well. So just in case you're listening and you couldn't hear it on the podcast, verse 5 says, And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan. And the question is, is that hyperbole? And I would say absolutely. And uh, isn't that kind of interesting? Like God uses hyperbole in his word. Um, this is not a literal statement that every single person, but it is meant to show you that John's movement was gripping. Um, people were interested in what he had to say. I think I think probably quite a f more than a few Jews were, were tired of the, the corruption of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they were also eager for the Messiah. And if John was the one who was going to usher it in, they wanted to be part of that. Likely most of the people went, but not all. Yeah, not all. I've right. seen the movie a hundred times. I haven't seen it a hundred times. I, I want you to know I've seen it a lot. Yes, know. right. Totally. Another, another, I don't know if you want to make um, the reference to Elijah, what his garment, you know, like he's definitely where the illusions of Elijah. Yes. Yeah, sorry. That's also good. Thank you for bringing that up because at one point – Jesus will be asked, doesn't Elijah come first? And Jesus says he already came, right? And he's talking about John, John being the fulfillment of Elijah. So that's good. Thank you. Um, and Elijah was, yeah, the point is Elijah was the same kind of 
It'd be crazy weirdo. Wearing the wearing the camel's hair. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I think the cool part about both of those uh, persons mentioned is like the outward appearance is interesting to look in, yet they both point to Christ. Yeah. The outer appearance is weird, but they point to Christ. Is that yeah, what and it's that? about yeah, and it's about Christ, and it's not about yeah. Himself. Yeah. I love this because you, you actually get this uh, in a lot of the, the gospel accounts. Like, So the Jews were expecting a, a, a Messiah who would be a socio-political savior. He would be like David, right? Coming in all the glory of David to restore Israel, to be God's kingdom on earth and conquer the nations and rule over them in righteousness. And, um, and it's no wonder that a lot of the religious leaders were disappointed. What, John? That guy? Like, he's a weirdo. He's not even one of us. What business does he have being the guy who ushers this in? And then, you know, the angels proclaim the birth of Christ to shepherds in a field. Yeah. Right? And Herod the king doesn't come to visit Jesus, but the kings, the wise men from the east come. Like, what business do they have? They're not Jews. Right? So there's a lot of this in, in the gospel narratives about how like Christ uses, God uses the lowly things to shame the wise. Um, or I should say, he uses the lowly things to shame the strong and the, the foolishness, the things that we would call foolish to shame the wise, right? Um, it's just not what you would expect, and I love that. Yep. Um, which is also kind of like hopeful for us because if you're honest, you're not the kind of person God would pick to be part of his movement either. And yet that's exactly the kind of people that God does pick. So praise God for that. Um, <clears throat> okay. Little, little confusion. In, in your background, Mark, um, he's not a rabbi. He's not a, like, Sadducee or... He's not a Pharisee or a Sadducee. A and, and yet he, he, he is kind of, like, really um, familiar with the Old Testament because he quoted the... the Thing from, from Isaiah. Yes, he is familiar with the Old Testament. Now, probably most Jews would have been familiar with this stuff because, you know, the Jewish sort of early education system, particularly for males, would have included this kind of preparation, oh, okay. certainly regarding things related to the Messiah. But I think that's another argument why we're dealing with a guy like Mark, who is familiar with Judaism, as, as opposed to maybe an outsider. Um, all right, so let's pick up in verse 9. <laughs> in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Does anybody find it interesting that Mark includes Jesus' hometown? I find it interesting, and here's why. Back in verse 1, this is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who comes from Podunk, Podunk Nazareth in Galilee. Again, we sort of just talked about this, but um, Nazareth in Galilee... Like, where do you expect, you know, sort of the 
rich, intelligent, powerful movers and shakers to come from, you know, Beverly Hills, right? New York, L.A., London, Paris. Where's Jesus from? He's like from Kansas, like in the middle of nowhere, right? Again, this is this is important because um, this is this is like flipping everything on its head. You know, if you're trying to persuade a Greek audience, a Roman audience, uh, to believe this message in the in sort of the the natural power of man in the flesh, you don't include this information. Um, you 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 make up some beautiful story about how Jesus was actually from Rome. You know, he's a cultural elite. He's got connections to Greek. Uh, the Greek intelligentsia. No, he's Jesus of Nazareth, but he's the son of God. No and, from heaven like Thor. Right? Yeah, exactly. That kind of thing. Right? He's he's Hercules. He's the he's the son of, you know, God and Hera or Zeus and Hera. No, that's not what the Bible attempts to do. And you have to believe this by faith. This is not the kind of thing that man would naturally say, yes, yeah, sign me up to follow that guy. Um Okay, so if the baptism that John was offering was for the remission of sins, the forgiveness of sins, why does Jesus get baptized? What sins did Jesus have to be forgiven of? He's setting an example. Yeah. I think there's two aspects to it, and I think that's the first one. He is giving us an example. Why should we be baptized? Well, our Lord was baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Let's follow in his footsteps. But he is sinless. He has no sins to be forgiven of. And so I think that in many ways this is a symbolic action. Jesus says in one of the other Gospels, it, John's like, I, I shouldn't baptize you. You should baptize me. And Jesus says, let it be so in order to fulfill all righteousness. And so I think what you have here is, all, all Judea in Israel has gone out to be baptized. Jesus is fulfilling all Judea and all Israel. He, he, he is entering into the human experience to do for us what we can't actually do on our own. So I think that's kind of the second part. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. um, this is the beginning of Jesus saying, I am going to identify with the sins of my people that I might bear them on their behalf. Does that make sense? And that's ultimately going to take him to the cross. Okay, so just understand, Jesus was not baptized according to John's baptism because he had any sin of his own. He was giving us, us an example, and he was standing in our place. And by doing so, be showing obedience in everything he did was to Yeah, there's not any place where it clearly says that Jesus was commanded to go get baptized, and so he did. Um, of course, everything he he says, I only do what I hear my father telling me to do, right? So, of course, he did it in obedience to the father, but there's no clear, like, verse that says that. And and so we could say that, but I, but I think probably, I think probably the bigger thing is, like, 
Jesus is putting himself in the place of sinners because that's what that's what he came to do. I think it's, it's sobering to think about like a modern situation like that. Some person that says they're a prophet of God and they're telling me to go to them and me and my current religious state ain't going out to you. You know, like who are you? But it really is a person of God, and this is wow. Yeah. I don't know how. I don't know. If I would go to John the Baptist if I was in my religious state of being. Sure. Sure. Scary. Sure. It is. I think this is also like God is showing to the people that you know, because for sure there is a hundreds of people around, showing to them that this is my son. Yes. Obey him. Yes. <laughs> like I think the Father is showing that you know. This is my son. You have to obey him. Yes, amen. And that's the, the other piece that we get from these verses. So uh, verse 10, when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. I think there's some beautiful sort of foreshadowing here. Yeah. The When Christ rises from the dead, you know, he, he, he tears. Well, I mean, it's sort of, it literally says that at his crucifixion, the curtain was torn, right? The veil was torn. But but the entirety of that action, crucifixion to resurrection, was in essence the veil of heaven being opened to man, right? And so that's what Jesus is going to do. Baptism, death, resurrection, he's going to open, he's going to re restore the breach between God and man. Great, wild, wild thoughts. Thinking about... Uh... John somehow knew, you know, Jesus from the womb knew who Jesus was. Yeah. Yet he doesn't know who Jesus is because God tells him the one that, you know, I show you when you baptize him is Jesus. Yeah. And, and he even says, This is kind of why I'm baptizing. I kind of wonder if that's the, the message John is wanting to baptize so he can find out who the Messiah is by this thing. And then people know that and they're going out there, I'm going to get dumped and see if I'm the Messiah. You know? Got it. That could be interesting. So John's out there hoping that one day the Messiah will show up and he gets to finally figure out who it is. Yeah. Until the Spirit comes so, down. Yeah. Oh, it's quite possible. It is quite possible. I mean, certainly if you were John, you would want to know, right? Because we're told that as as a as a baby in his mother's womb, just being near Mary, with Christ conceived in her, he leapt. But then he doesn't know that Jesus. Yeah. It is. It is weird. Um, and maybe it's because he's been out in the wilderness like a crazy man for all these years. I don't know. But I think because John knew it because, you know, remember in the beginning, God gave us breath. I mean, this breath in us. So it, it's natural in us that we have the spirit that, you know, from God. Yeah. So God can communicate directly that. Yeah, certainly John is in communication with God. Yeah. And actually, there's there's a part, too, I forget which gospel it's in, where John sees Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, like, yeah, so I, 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 whether he, like, physically recognized him or whether God was revealing it to him, I don't know. Um, and, you know, it's kind of interesting that Mark just doesn't really care to, like, fill in some of those details. <laughs> And, and this is actually brings up a really good point, which is, um, guys, we need to be content with yeah. what God has revealed. Because, I mean, you think about it, John's, or Mark begins with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, when does it begin? It begins with Jesus, like in his 30s, 
right? And I mean, I had a good friend in in college who uh, wandered off into heresy and became a part of this weird cult because he wanted to know more about um, he wanted to know more about the early days of Jesus' life, and he found this weird cult book that supposedly was written by a guy who was possessed by one of the apostles and told him the story of Jesus' childhood. And he, like, lost his mind. Um, I came across this quote reading, so I'm working my way slowly through the Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, and he says this beautiful thing. He says, Let us remember, as in all Christian doctrine, that we ought to hold to one rule of modesty and sobriety, not to speak or guess or even to seek to know concerning obscure matters anything except what has been imparted to us by God's word. Furthermore, in the reading of scripture, we ought ceaselessly to endeavor to seek out and meditate upon those things which make for edification. Let us not indulge in curiosity or in the investigation of unprofitable things. And because the Lord willed to instruct us not in fruitless questions, but in sound godliness, in the fear of his name, in true trust, and in the duties of holiness, let us be satisfied with this knowledge. Now, I'm not, I'm not rebuking anybody for curiosity. I mean, as I read, I have curiosity. There's nothing wrong with that. The thing is, after you've teased out the curiosity and wondered and maybe searched to see if you can find anything that might verify it, will you simply say, you know what, this is good. I'm, I'm content with what God has given me. Um, because contentment is is a gift from God, and God's word is sufficient. And Say it again. It says godliness with contentment is great gain. Yep. Yeah. And there's such thing as empty, empty knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, in the Colossians, we're reading in women's Bible study, like how there's a lot of warning about not entertaining um, philosophy. That yeah. Like the empty philosophies of man, right? and yeah. Or like yeah. things that are like angels or things. Yeah. That yeah. And again, I'm not trying to squash anybody's curiosity. I think curiosity is a wonderful thing because a lot of times you might have a question. It's like, well, what like, well, what did the Old Testament say about Jesus? Well, then you can go to the Old Testament and you can find out that curiosity is going to drive you to grow. That's a beautiful thing. But there might come a point where you reach dead end. It's like we don't know anymore. And then you just have to say, well, what God has said is, is enough and I will be content with that. Yep. And there is peace about it. Yes, absolutely. Um. Okay, so here, here's the first word immediately, right? See it there? Uh, verse 10, and then if you look at verse 12, immediately. Verse 18, immediately. Verse 21, immediately. I could go on and on and on. You're going to see it a lot now that you've been told it's there. Yeah, it gives you a different word? Yeah. Okay, well, that's kind of the... What, what are you reading? Well, it, it's different all the time. I'm reading the HCSB. HCSB, okay. Ends, but there's some immediately. Yeah, okay. Uh, it's all the same Greek word. Yeah. Now, you can translate it different ways, but it's all the same same Greek word. Um, okay, so the heavens are being torn open, the spirit descending on him like a dove. I do want to just point out to you guys uh, that, just as a reminder, that um, Greek, the original Greek manuscripts didn't have... Uh, capitalization or even punctuation and the reason I tell you that is because when you come across the word spirit sometimes you'll notice it's capitalized other times it's not capitalized 
that's actually a translation that that's a that's an interpretation um, now I, I I tend to agree with the interpretation I certainly in this case I agree with the interpretation this is the Holy Spirit right this is a proper noun this is a name the Spirit of God um, but I think that's worth paying attention to because that's a that's your Bible translators making an interpretive decision that wouldn't have been in the original text. The spirit descends on him like a dove. What's the what's the significance of the dove? It's a clean bird. It's a clean bird. That's good. It was one that could be used for sacrificial purposes. I think also it has to do with peace, right? Yeah. The spirit of God is the spirit of peace. You know, I make, it makes me always think of um, uh, Noah coming off the ark. The dove, you know, returns saying that the, the chaos is over. Um, okay, and then a voice came from heaven. You think that's a, an audible voice? Who heard it? Just Jesus? Let's let's look at um, let's look at another account here because uh, I should have I should have put this down, but um, one of the other gospels records that uh, people heard a voice like thunder from heaven. Does anybody know which one it is? Not Matthew? Okay, it's not Luke, so maybe it's John. Um, I'll have to I'll have to look this up, guys. Maybe it's referenced in a in one of the maybe it's referenced in one of the, the epistles. Let me verify John, that. John said, Ignore what said, I said until I verify it. Yeah. John said that John testified saying, I have seen the spirit descending as a dove out of heaven. Yeah. It doesn't mention any audible noise there. Um, well, here's an, a place where uh, Mark doesn't give us details. Um, is it only Jesus? Is it Jesus and John? Is it the crowds around that hear this? Mark does not record it for us. The point is, we hear, right? It's recorded here. The Spirit is saying to us, this is the Son of God. Right? You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Okay? So whether John heard it or whether the crowds heard it, we hear it. Um, and therefore, we're, we're responsible for it. Hmm. Yeah. If the um, crowd heard it, though, wouldn't it change to he instead of you? Because you is personal. Yeah, in, in, but in another gospel, it, it, I'm pretty sure it does say, this is my beloved son. Oh, okay. 
I'm sorry, guys. I should have I should have put all these together so that we could compare some of them. Um, well, remind me of your name. Nanita. 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 You mentioned John said that he heard it. So. No, he. he Oh, he saw. The dog. He saw. I mean, I think for, for sure everybody saw that. You know, that dog. Uh, okay, Luke records, you are my beloved son. Matthew says, this is my beloved This is my beloved son. Okay, so there, you know, that could imply that he's being spoken of to an audience. But again, we don't, we don't really know. And it's okay, because the point is we, we hear, and now we have to respond. Um, and that's kind of what matters. I think rather than get into the temptation of Jesus, we will um, hold off on that and we'll wrap it up there. I know it's a little early, but I don't think four minutes is sufficient time to jump into that. So next week, Gabe is actually going to be here uh, teaching. I am out of town doing a wedding. And so Gabe will teach and then I'll be back the week after that. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is sufficient. We thank you for Mark and his record of the life of Christ. And I pray that it would immediately drive us to Jesus, that we would feel that sense of urgency to come to him. Um, and we thank you that Jesus is the son of God, that you were well pleased with him, that he stood in our place, that we might be forgiven of our sins. Um, Lord, I pray that you would bless us as we follow Christ in this journey to the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.